Good morning, church. You guys doing all right this morning? Wide awake and alert. The fall weather is upon us. Amen to that. Oh, man, 46 degrees this morning when I got in my car. Crazy. And that's like winter to all of you down here, I know, compared to us, you know, from the north. But anyway, it's great to be here with you. My name's Jerry, uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, my privilege and honor to dive into God's word with you again here this morning. Invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in your copy of Scripture or on your mobile device. That's where we're going to be spending the entirety of our time this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us or if you haven't been here in a few weeks, we started a series a couple weeks back called This Beautiful Mess. And the premise behind it was that God designed his church to be his bride, to be the vehicle that he used to change the world. And it's a bride that was meant to be spotless and beautiful and wonderful. And as we all know, church life has not turned out to be that way. We are flawed. We are broken in so many ways. And here we are in 2014, 2,000 years ago, the church of Corinth was also in a mess. And this book was written from the heart of its founder, the Apostle Paul, sharing with the people that he loves, here's what I see in your church and here's how we can fix it. So our task in this series is to dive in to the context and understand what's going on and understand how we can better move forward as God's church in its beauty and in its effectiveness to reach this world and this city for him. So just a reminder, the city of Corinth was about as seedy as they get. It was corrupt. It was a very wealthy city. So they had lots of money. They had lots of time and they didn't have any morals. And those things all combined together to a place that was just very, very, very dark. And so this church was at the heart of the city and the people desired to reach their culture, yet they found themselves influenced by the culture. We've talked a little bit over the last couple of weeks about how our culture has formed us and fashioned us into a mold that is extremely self-centered, if you watch the advertising on TV or even if you live uh, and, and look at billboards and just interact with any businesses, you'll find that your satisfaction is all the way at the top. And it's almost as if we live, they want us to live in a house full of mirrors so that everywhere we look, we see ourselves, how can we be the happiest? And that's how the economy exists. And we all know that there's selfishness abounding and there's plenty of contemporary illustrations of that. But I wanted to pick out one, the epitome of what I found of selfishness and entitlement. I want to introduce you to a girl and her name is Rachel. So this is Rachel. Rachel's a high school student in New Jersey, ironically, at a high school that I used to play athletics against, basketball and football. So I have been to her school. So this is Rachel. You can see by the caption, teen sues her own parents. Any of you guys thought about that before? I see no hands. We have lovely angels here. So here's Rachel. She's living her life, going to a private school. And uh, her senior year, halfway through her senior year, she and her parents started to have some conflicts. She was totally skipping out on curfew, doing whatever she wanted, dating a boy that her parents didn't approve of. And so finally one night they said, well, if you're going to live in our house, you're going to be home at this time. She said, I'm not going to be home by that time. And they said, well, 
if you're gonna live in this house, you're gonna be home by this time. She said, well, I'm not gonna live in this house. She left on her own volition, moved in with a friend, and that's conflict. That's not probably that new. We have these conflicts, we see them, they happen, right? But the difference is she took it one step further and decided she was going to hire a lawyer and sue her parents. What is she suing them for? Well, $12,000 for the remaining fee for her private school education, finish out her senior year. $46,000 a year she's suing her parents for so that they can pay for her four-year private school college education. And finally, just for a little bit of spending money, a total of $654 per week she's suing her parents for. That's kind of a per diem. You need gas, you need food, she needs clothes. So she's suing her parents for $654 a week to pay for her to be out of their house, going to a private school. Oh, and by the way, $200,000 of private school education. So I think a lot of us, we look at that and we're like, this girl needs a little bit of an awakening and she needs to live in reality that says, you know what? We don't operate that way. We need to earn things. We are not always just given things. We're not entitled. The whole universe does not surround you. And obviously she lost the lawsuit, needless to say, but it got a lot of press. You can look up all the details. It was quite humorous actually that somebody would actually feel like they are that entitled. But I bring that illustration to us this morning because that whole realm of immaturity and entitlement and selfishness is what we're going to be tackling this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The title of the message this morning is how the church should be mature in a culture of crybabies. How we as a church should be mature in a culture of crybabies. And I've kind of broken it down into three different directives that we see taken directly from this text. So if you're taking notes here this morning, I encourage you to follow along and write these down. So let's go ahead and dive right in. How can we as a church grow up even in this culture? Number one, we need to deny our natural reaction. Point number one, we need to deny the reaction that absolutely comes naturally to us. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, Let's dive into the scripture and find out what the Apostle Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what he says. But I, brothers, little side note, a commentary that I was reading says that the Apostle Paul did something here that none of the Old Testament prophets did. They would never bring themselves along that same line uh, as the people that they were giving the word of the Lord from. In the Old Testament, it was more, thus says the Lord, you need to do this. But the Apostle Paul basically is saying, once again, I love you. I'm right here with you. I'm right next to you, brothers. I struggle too, but here's what I see. Keep on reading. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you still are of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? 
So what we see here in this first section is that the Apostle Paul is basically after getting himself on the same level, saying, you're my brothers, you're my family, I love you, you're gathered together, this is being read aloud, but I've got something to say to you. You guys are a bunch of babies. Nobody likes to be called that, right? Uh, other versions, perhaps, if you have, says, you are still babes in Christ which is kind of a fancy translation. Actually, as a matter of fact, when I was in high school, we used to joke around about that with my guy friends. Hey, we're going to this Christian summer camp. We're on our way. I'm hoping that I meet some babes in Christ. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter three. Followed by other very bad, you know, Christian dating puns, you know, like hold fast to that which is good, you know. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Talk about immaturity, example A, okay? But the fact is, we all know babies. We've been around babies. Some of us have babies right now, and, and we know that babies react and respond in a certain way based on what physically they need. Notice it says here three different times in this particular passage, you are still in the flesh. You are still in the flesh. And that's referencing the idea that, that in our flesh, what our flesh desires for a baby, especially, especially a newborn, before they've learned to curb their response, before they've learned self-control, they only respond in the flesh. They're going to start crying. Why? If they're hungry, if they're thirsty, if their body needs something, that's the only way they know to respond. If they're uncomfortable, if they need to be changed, if they're hot, if they're cold, how do they respond? They cry. That is in the flesh. This is what the body needs, so I don't really know how to respond. This is all I know. And we recognize that with newborns. So we would hope that as they get a little bit bigger, some of that's going to change. But the Apostle Paul's saying, you know what? You're not changing. You're still acting just like infants, and all you can handle is milk. Now, I need to share with you right now part of my personal history. It's not easy to say. I had kind of a messed up childhood when I was growing up. And even to this day, my mother is a lactation consultant. My mom was the queen, head honcho, grand pupa of an organization called the La Leche League, which is a fancy, you know, Italian or French term for the Milk League. So she was engaged. She was a part of the Milk League. She joined the Milk League. She soon worked her way up to the very top of the Milk League. And she was, uh, and she was just on top of her game. So this was what she did for a living, okay? So back in the day, you remember there was like the answer machine that used to sit like on the wall and you'd walk in and it would be blinking with four or five or six messages. So I'm in high school and I come home, sweet, maybe somebody called, maybe one of my babes in Christ called, you know? So I click on that and of course my mom gave out our home phone number for the Milk League hotline. So on this answering machine is the craziest details of stuff I don't even wanna know about. All these problems, all these issues, and I'm like, ah! A messed up childhood. To this day, she goes around to hospitals and helps new moms with nursing and everything else. And it is a beautiful, noble, amazing thing. That's the way God designed us, right? Bonding for a mother and child, nutrition, all the other things. I could actually talk for quite a while on that because of the <laughs> upbringing that I've had. But we all know it's a little awkward, a little strange, 
If there's a baby and that's all they ever have is milk and they never graduate to anything else, as much as we hate baby food and everything, that's part of the process. And after the baby food, then you start giving them the Cheerios, you start cutting up the fruit and you keep on going, going, introducing new things as, as, as these children are growing and growing and growing because that's what maturity is. But the Apostle Paul is saying to this church, you guys are still really, really immature. Why? You have not learned to deny your natural reaction, your fleshly reaction, just like a baby. No self-control. So even though who he's writing to now is believers, they're still almost acting like they did not have God and they were still living in the flesh. Because for us, our initial response, because of the pride that exists and the cancerous pride and arrogance that is part of every single one of us, that is automatically our natural reaction, living in the flesh. Not just physically, but more so spiritually living in the flesh. What's an example of that? Well, the Apostle Paul, I wonder what, if he was really living in the flesh, what his response his natural response would have been when he first got this message, remember, in chapter one from Chloe's people who brought the news and said, you know what, the city of Corinth, the, the church that you started there is in complete shambles. There's four different parties. One of them's called, you know, the we follow Paul party. We follow Apollos. We follow Peter. And we follow Christ. I wonder if at that moment in, in Paul's mind, it's like, oh, there's a whole party of people that follow me. Huh. Never had a fan club before, you know, picture like, you know, the, uh, you know, every four years when they have the big gala with all the signs and everything. And they're like, Paul's the man. Paul's amazing. We love Paul. He's got his own little fan club there. And I wonder if he ever said to himself, oh, that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll sign some, you know, scripts and some stuff and give it to them and, you know, throw them a bone. And all right, those are my people. Or I wonder if Paul ever thought like, oh no, things are going so terribly. There's so many problems with this church. They're so uninformed. They're making these bad decisions. They, they've allowed all these different things into their church. I wonder if Paul said to himself, well, you know what? It's no wonder that they're in shambles. I'm not there. God, I really wish you would have made about five of me so that I could stay here in Rome doing what I'm doing, figure this out. I can go over to Ephesus. I can go to, you know, these people over here, Jerusalem, that I can send one of myself over to Corinth because when I was there, I was working with them. Things were in order and they need good leadership. They need me there. See what it means to respond in the flesh? It's insidious. It's evil. It's deceptive. And it happens all the time in our heart and in our mind if we're not careful. It's the natural reaction. And it's immature. Just two weeks ago, I visited back up to Michigan. And again, as most of you know, I, I served there for nine years in a church before God led us down here to this community and this body. And I went up there to do a wedding of a dear friend that I committed to seven or eight months ago. And of course, I'm interacting with a lot of the people that I hold dear, people that I worked with, other pastors there and, and other people. We're reuniting with old friends and it's, and it's great, but at the same time, it's a little weird. Because I'm getting all kinds of reports, right? Some people are like, oh, Jerry, you know what? We miss you so much. Things just are not the same without you. I'm like, oh, really? Hmm. Oh, no, I'm sure they're great. I'm sure they're awesome. But again, responding in the flesh. But then some other people are like, oh, man, everything's going awesome. 
We brought this new guy in. He is killing it every week. I mean, they totally changed the name of everything and the whole student ministry and we're just, and there's momentum. I'm like, oh, huh, huh, oh, really? Oh, that's a name? Huh, that's a good name, I guess. You know, of course not. I'm like, yeah, man, that's right. He should be killing it. That's great. I love those students. I love that church. Yup, God's man. Yeah. But in the flesh, your natural response is different. It's selfish. And that's what Paul was addressing here. So the first thing we need to recognize as a church, we want to be mature. We need to deny that. Don't let that take hold. I love what he says here in the end here of verse four. He says, uh, so when one of you say I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? He mentions that phrase twice. Are you not being just like ordinary men, just like everybody else? That's the way the whole rest of the world is. Always out for themselves, always thinking about themselves, always want to propagate and make themselves look good. Aren't you being just like that? It's time to grow up. It's time to understand the meatier, heftier things of God and grow up into maturity. And that's our first step. Second step is this. You need to realize the process that God works in. You need to realize the process that God works in. Let's keep on reading here in verse, uh, in verse five. It says this. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field and you are God's building. Part of maturity, church, is to recognize that God has a plan for how he's going to work. And it's not always going to be the way you think it should be or the time that you think it should be. Paul says right out of the gate, what are we? We are servants. We are servants. Notice that next phrase. He says, as the Lord assigned to each one. So we basically get the visual here that Paul and Apollos and Cephas and anyone else that had a hand in what was going on are merely servants and God had literally an assignment for them for a certain amount of time to use them for his honor and glory. In other words, Paul saying, I am just a tool. You ever hear that phrase thrown around? Like that guy over there, man, dude, he is such a tool. Ever hear that? What does that mean? Like, well, some guy that just gets used and abused or that's just a tool. I submit to you today that every one of us should rise up and say, God, I just want to be a tool for you. That's what Paul's saying. What are we? We're mere servants. We're mere tools. And every one of us is different and God uses us differently, but he all uses it for his honor and glory. Notice what Paul said. He said, and when I came to you, I planted a seed. I got a couple little familiar props up here to help us with this illustration. We all know what this is. You go down to the Home Depot or the Lowe's or the hardware store and you can get yourself one of these. 
And one of the things that this is used for is to spread seeds. You roll it, it spins around, it shoots out seed or fertilizer or whatever you put in there. And this is a seed spreader. But did you ever see somebody, a, a real farmer, who was spreading out and broadcasting seed? It's not as easy and gentle as that. They're taking this stuff and they're just whipping it down and like throwing it every different angle possible down into the soil. So that with all the different angles and all the different ways it's being broadcast out, hopefully it'll find its way into soil that's been prepared and, and then it'll germinate and eventually it'll begin to grow. Paul says, when I came down there with you guys, that was my role. This was the tool that I was when I was down there. That was my assignment. Just spreading a seed, just casting out seed. It's such a beautiful illustration that Jesus himself used, right? In the parable of the sower who went out and was just broadcasting seed everywhere that he could find his way to broadcast it. And it landed on all different kinds of soil. But that wasn't his concern. His job at that moment was to just plant the seed. And I think about where we live and what we do. And I wonder if today there's some frustration and some immaturity in some respect in a lot of churches because people are like, well, you know what? I just don't see God moving at all. Well, maybe our assignment for today, maybe what we need to think about, our task is simply spreading a seed of hope. It's not glamorous. It's not lots of accolades. It's just doing your role. I think about two weeks ago, I was at this New York pizza place, which I love all your New York pizza places down here. Can I just share that from the bottom of my heart? As somebody that came from New Jersey, it's thin, it's greasy, it's delicious, and there's like one on every corner. So I was at one, and I went in. There's a girl there who's about 25 years old working, only person in the restaurant, strike up a conversation, and I just gave her that whole same spiel. I love all your pizza. Oh, where are you from? Why'd you come here? Whatever. I'm a pastor. So, of course, I said, well, do you go to church? Oh, yeah, I go to church. I'm like, oh, awesome. The infamous follow-up question, what church do you go to? Oh, um... It's, um, you know, the one that's down on the, on the corner off of the uh, boulevard uh, back in the woods. Um, and I said, you don't really go to church, do you? She's like, no. You said you're a pastor, so I thought I would just try and play along. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. Well, the pizza was done. And I said, well, listen, we meet at Panther Creek High School. You know where that is, Northwest Community Church. But beyond all that, I just want to tell you that you know, she shared that she used to go to church, but just stopped because she was out of her parents' house. I, I just want to let you know, I don't know what experience you had, but I'm here to tell you right now that there's a God who knows your name, knows your situation, and who loves you. And he would love to have a relationship with you. And he would love to forgive anything that you've done and give you hope, give you a future, give you a purpose that's so much more than just living for yourself. And that was as far as we got. Okay, yeah, I'll think about it. Okay, awesome. And I left. But you know what I was doing right there? Just throwing a seed out. Just planting a seed. That was my role at that moment. Who knows if that's going to continue. But if we serve a God and we understand the process that he works in, we have to trust that it will continue. Why? Because Paul says, I'm the one that planted the seed, but Apollos is the one that watered. So somebody totally different now comes into the equation 
God moved Paul out of there and for years here was Apollos and he was there with all of the things that Paul had taught with all these elementary teachings. Apollos is there watering, helping to have them grow because that was his assignment and that was his tool for this particular period in life. So maybe for some of you, that's your role now. You've got somebody that you know that seems to be really far away from God and there's already been a seed planted or they already know or they grew up in church or whatever it is. But maybe your role right now is just to do some watering, just to look for opportunities where you can share little tidbits of truth and hope and sprinkle them in there. But notice Paul says the one who plants the seed and the one that waters, we are all one. And it's not our ability and it's not our flashiness and it's not how smart we are that causes the gospel to take root. It's God who causes the growth and God who ultimately causes the fruit. Because this right here is the concrete, beautiful part of the illustration, right? This is the one that we know and we love and we can share and we can taste and see and and this is why we do what we do, to see fruit to see people make decisions, to see people go from death to life, to see great things happen, the fruit of it all. But God's process is one that will take time. And the mature church understands that and they understand that their role may be different. I think about even the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this letter. You remember if you've been around church for a long period of time, the story is that he was on a road to Damascus and he saw this bright light and had this amazing conversion and that's where Jesus met him. His name was Saul at the time, changed his name to Paul and turned him on for incredible gospel spreading all throughout Asia and all over all these different cities and he was one of the saints, we recognize all that. But I wonder even if for Paul there was opportunities where other people planted a seed when his name was Saul. You ever think about that? Maybe that time, that moment, that wasn't the first time Saul had heard of this Jesus. We know from the book of Acts that Saul was one of the foremost people as a Pharisee who would go around house to house and he would be dragging fathers and mothers and children out of their house, throwing them into prison because they claimed the name of Jesus and were followers of this new group called The Way. So you think during one of those times when when Saul was there ordering his soldiers and they were taking these guys and, and tying them up and dragging them out and about ready to throw them into prison or for them to be killed. Do you think one of them said, Saul, if you only knew this Jesus, if you only knew the hope that he brings that's in a relationship in a new life, not in an empty way of life, just following a bunch of rules. If you only knew, Saul, that he was the Messiah, I'm gonna be praying for you. Planting seeds, watering seeds. But God is the one who causes the growth. I love that Paul says, the one who plants, the one who waters, all of them are nothing. Nothing in ourselves, no reason to boast. It's just stepping into what God has put for us there at that particular time. Finally, the third thing that we want to recognize how to be a church that's mature is we need to understand that our work will be tested. Understand that our work will be tested. Let's read in uh, verse 10, chapter 3. 
This is sobering. Listen to this. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with wood, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Sorry, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. We need to understand that there's a reckoning that's coming, that there's a test that's coming. And it's not one that we should necessarily be fearful of, like some of you maybe you're fearful of tests in school, but it's one that we need to be aware of. Because at the end of time, we're all going to stand before God, as scripture says, and we're going to give an account for all the deeds that have been done with this body, the good and the bad. If we belong to Jesus, we don't need to worry about condemnation because our sins have been forgiven and covered by the blood of the cross. But at the same time, we need to recognize that we're going to give an account of what did you do with your life? What did you build on? What did you use your capital for? What did you use your time doing? What did you use your relationships for? And the Apostle Paul saying to these people who are living in this city, you know, we're going to use the illustration of a building. You're all familiar with these temples in Corinth. You're gonna see them when we're done here reading this, walking up and down every road. There's massive temples and you're gonna see some that are built with stone, built really well, built with gold, built with precious metals. And in a storm or in a fire, those are the ones that are still gonna be standing. But there's a whole lot of other shops and shacks and houses that are built out of straw and hay and stubble and mud and just common ordinary items that aren't going to stand worth anything why because of the foundation that they were built upon that's the only reason Paul's saying hey like an expert skilled master craftsman I built on the foundation of Jesus Christ this is what I want my foundation to be and he's saying this to the Corinthians who their foundation is their own ego, their own kingdoms, their own preferences. Here's what I want to build everything according and around and I want it to look like this way. And Paul's saying you need to get back to the cross in Jesus and say what's going to be best for my kingdom, not your kingdom. Because you need to understand at the end of time you're going to stand there and I'm going to say what did you do with the time I gave you? And over and over, I love Paul's heartbeat. Over and over in scripture, he says, my fear is that maybe I've labored and I've run in vain. Maybe you guys aren't gonna follow me all the way through and live your life for the honor and glory of Jesus and, and I just don't wanna be disqualified. He's saying, I want you to know and I want you to understand what mature people think of. And it's not the immediate, it's not right now, it's what can I do to glorify God and as it pertains to the process of building God's kingdom and how God uses different people in different places, I just want to leave you with one illustration from my own life. My wife, Becca's grandfather, his name was Lito. He was from Spain, came over, was born there, came over and was very much a self-made man. 
came over with nothing, started a business, started to earn some money, went and served in the war and did well there, came back and his whole empire, everything he owned, he had made for himself. And when his daughter and her husband went to college, they found out that there's a different way to live. Not to live for yourself, but to live for somebody else, to live for Jesus, to make him your master. So they became Christians. And for the next 50 years, they continually tried to share with their father and father-in-law, here's what it means to live for Jesus. Here's what you need to do, Leto. We love you and we want to see you in heaven. And this is what we're concerned about. Here's what you need to do. Ah, I don't need any of that. God helps those who help themselves. I don't need him. I'm working hard. I'm a good person. Over and over and over and over again. And when Becca, my wife, was growing up, when she was seven, eight, nine, she used to sit on his lap and say, Lito, why don't you believe in Jesus? We want you to trust in Jesus. Oh, you know, I don't, I don't need any of that, you know. She would witness to him. And so a few years back, we went and visited her family, and he was still alive, and he was 94 years old. And he would just sit out on his back porch on his rocker and just talk about the old days. And one afternoon we were out there and I was shooting baskets with my son Caden. I looked over and there was Becca, my wife, talking with her grandfather. And I just prayed right at that moment. I said, God, just open up the door. All the seeds that have been planted, all the watering that's been done, God, please just open up his heart, open up his eyes. Maybe this is your time for him to know you. So sure enough, Becca brought it up again and shared the gospel with him and she could see a difference in him this time. She could see a brokenness in his eyes as his eyes filled with tears and he ended up saying that I've been running away from Jesus all these years. I wanna come to him. I wanna accept him. I wanna ask forgiveness. I need him. I want him to be my savior. And so on that back porch at the age of 94, he prayed the sinner's prayer and received brand new life. The very next day, he started to get sicker and sicker physically. They brought him in to the hospital and he never came home. He was there in the hospital for several days, even a week or more, and ended up going home to be with the Jesus that he had just met a matter of 10 days, 15 days before. So I bring that to you to say, I don't know how that lands on you this morning. I don't know if like the Corinthians, we're so concerned with ourselves and what our image is that we naturally respond in the flesh or that we try and speed up the process of God and say, nope, I want all this right now. When God is saying, I want you to just do this or I want you to just do this. Or maybe for you, it's looking over your life right now and saying, what am I working for? What am I working towards? Whose kingdom am I building? And would God look down and be happy with the work that I'm doing? So whatever it is for you this morning, I just pray that the truth of God's word has invaded. And instead of building a bunch of small little kingdoms like they were doing in Corinth, we would all turn around together and lock arms and say, we want to build your kingdom, God. We want to work for you. We want to bring your love and your justice to every dark corner of every household in Cary and Chapel Hill and Apex and Mooresville and beyond. God, that's what you want for us. And we want to be a part of that kingdom work. We want to build your kingdom, God. So convict us, we pray. So I'm just going to pray for us and pray over us as we...
prepare to just sing one song of declaration and response. So God, I just thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for this group of people, this community that you brought together here at Northwest for another Sunday. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the church of Corinth, as broken as it was. Yet, God, that we can look and that we can learn what not to do. Lord, I pray that you would protect this church. God, that you would allow us to lay our pride aside and that you would allow us to raise up a banner with your name on it so that you would be the cornerstone that we are building upon. May our labor not be in vain. We love you, God.